A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. I'm Will. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the rise of greedflation. Then you ask us about Labour's housing plans. We're really pleased to be joined today by our business editor, Will Dunn, who's been digging into the inflation figures to work out exactly why prices are actually so high. He's written the cover story in this week's magazine on the phenomenon of greedflation. So, Will, will you just explain to our listeners who might not have heard the term, what is greedflation? The idea is that when we look at inflation, it's not a single thing that has happened. It's it's waves of inflation. So the first one was caused by People, are, everyone's staying at home and buying loads of rubbish on Amazon. And that meant that the prices of what economists call durable goods went up because everyone wanted them. And and then as economies opened up, there was a second wave of inflation caused primarily by the price of energy. So there was already rising price of energy due to a whole load of factors before Russia invaded Ukraine. And then Russia invaded Ukraine and caused a very sharp spike in the price of energy. So you had a a demand-led inflation, then you had supply-led inflation. And now you have what a number of people think is profit-led inflation. After years of stories about why prices are going up, and indeed very good reasons for prices to go up, companies are adding a bit here and there to, as the Governor of England, the Bank of England has put it, rebuild their margins. It's not necessarily that companies are doing something really evil and just price gouging us for everything we've got. Although possibly that's the case in the case of some companies. But it is more that across the economy where it is possible to explain to the consumer this is why the price of something has to go up. It may be that they're also making up for some lost profit here and there. And that that while the prices of food have been rising at a rate of over 19%. Wages aren't rising anything like that much. And that's why I thought it was very important that we drew attention to it as a cover feature. It is contentious that not all economists think that this is happening. The Bank of England has said that across the whole economy, profit margins are relatively stable. Now, that what that tells me is that across the economy the cost of the war in Ukraine is being passed on to the consumer and it's being passed on most steeply to the consumers who can least afford it because, you know, the inflation, again, not just one number, it changes depending on who you are, how much you earn, 
what shop you're in. If you shop in Waitrose, your personal inflation rate is going to be a lot lower than if you shop in Lidl because their prices have changed by different amounts. That doesn't mean that Lidl is taking a lot more from its shoppers. It means that it probably sells a lot more basic foods which are going up in price more steeply. But yeah, it is a contentious subject. But when you look through a lot of companies' earning statements over the last few months, you can see a lot of them and a lot of them food companies. They are doing very well at a time when the consumer is not doing very well. Right. Okay. Because the rule, I think there's a part in your piece where you say, actually, if costs are going up, profit margins should really come down. That's what the graph should look like. They shouldn't be staying steady or going up. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That That is what one of the economists that I interviewed, and I should say, like I said, it is a bit of a contentious subject, but that's why I chose to interview economists who are, these aren't lefty yeah. <laughs> academics. Yeah, I think one the, of them the, is the chief economist at UBS Global Wealth Management. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I deliberately went to people Actually who work for the new statesmen. Yeah, commercial banks who are, they're not looking at this phenomenon out of a particular, they're human beings, I'm sure they care if other people can afford food or not, mm. but they also, the, the, the aim of their job is to give their investors a good idea of what's happening in the economy. Yeah. So if they're saying it, then there is very good reason to believe that it is there. And one of them highlighted this particular graph where using US data, because it's, it's easier to get better data from US companies, but that, yeah, throughout the decades, when when costs rise, profits fall. Costs cut into profits. But yeah, in the, since the last quarter of last year, those two lines moved apart in a way that he said he had never seen before. And the reason people or companies can do this is because there's a psychological expectation that companies, mm-hmm. that inflation exists and therefore companies can increase their prices. Is that right? Yeah, they've read all of these stories about the big boat blocking the Suez Canal, supply chains being jangled, you know, the cost of energy, the cost of fertiliser, basically all the things I've written for the last two <laughs> years. And all of those things have been true, that all of those things have been happening. But when you are a company, quite understandably, you might be running a, a small shop. It's not just supermarkets, although supermarkets are the kind of price leaders. So the prices they set will influence what other people can charge for things. But if you're a shop in a worrying looking economy, you might very well think I need to add a bit extra to make to, to pay for the uncertainty ahead and things like that. So yeah, it's not an, necessarily an evil phenomenon, but it is one that, that where prices creep in. And why is the market not working here? Because you would expect if one company increases its prices, another company will see an opportunity and reduce its prices and therefore go for market share. Yeah. Why is that not happening? That is, there. there's a phrase that's more more often used in sort of commodity markets than supermarkets, but it says the cure for high prices mm. is high prices. Mm. And that will eventually be true in that the consumer does eventually rebel against high prices and seek them, seek lower prices or just, just stop buying certain things. But firstly, you've got the fact that with a lot of this inflation being in food, That's not something people can decide to stop buying, as with energy. Also, you have a kind of what was talked about during the pandemic more as the K-shaped recovery, where half of society has done quite well. They saved a lot of money during the pandemic. If they owned assets, the prices of those assets were inflated by all the QE that was done. And then you have a lot of other people who haven't had those benefits. But those more affluent consumers, like they've they're doing all right. They've still yeah. got quite a lot of money left. That that might be changing now with the savings rates declining. But the, that that buffer has 
been part of the opportunity for businesses to to put up prices because there are still lots of people who can pay them. Right. Okay. And what we keep being told in terms of the strikes and sort of public sector pay is that it could lead to a wage price spiral and make inflation worse if we give out the pay rises that workers are demanding. But it doesn't seem that there's very much, there's not an equivalent happening for people's wages as there are for companies' profits, for example, as far as I can tell from reading your piece. No, it's, it is quite surprising how reticent politicians and the Bank of England have been to discuss the idea that company profits might be contributing towards the very stubble inflation that we have now. And I mean, we had Andrew Bailey talking on the news saying people should show restraint in asking for pay rises. We had Hugh Pill appeared on a podcast more recently and the chief economist at the bank saying, what did he say? He said, we've all got to accept that we're poor. (laughs) And I think in a way, he nearly got it right in that had he phrased it as everybody in the economy needs to accept that, that we, the economy is more broadly poorer because as a as a country, we have a terms of trade shock and that has to be absorbed by everyone, then I think that's what he meant to say, to be fair to him. But yeah, but he could have been more specific about talking about companies. Whereas, yeah, as it came out, it just sounded, you've all got to accept you've got less money. So just stop buying as much food, which was obviously extremely unpopular. And he had to apologise for that. The way that the Bank of England is trying to deal with inflation is by putting up interest rates. I think it's done that 12 times in a row now. But this isn't necessarily being reflected in what banks are offering to consumers, is it? No. So after the inflation data came out, last week, which was not a good number, especially in terms of core inflation, which had risen, interest rate expectations rose. And Nationwide and some other mortgage providers increased the rates they're charging on mortgages. So that even before the Bank of England had put up interest rates, long before they're going to do that, the cost of borrowing to buy a house has risen. But you won't see the same happening. There, there will not be, I'm confident in saying, a high street bank that will say, do you know what, we're going to add a bit more to your savings account interest because we think interest rates are going to be higher. And in fact, they might wait a few months after the bank raises rates just to be sure. They might never raise them. <laughs> and it's still possible to get an absolutely terrible savings rate from your bank if you have savings. Um, but yeah, so the what banks charge their borrowers rises very quickly and what they pay their depositors arises very slowly and that turns up in the the net interest income that they make which is a the big component in a high street bank's right. income is how much they make from that difference and yeah again they're rebuilding their margins doing right. that so before the financial crisis they could they could do that then 2008 happened and interest rates the bank rate was taken down almost to zero and high street banks, much as they, I'm sure they would have loved to, they couldn't pay less than nothing <laughs> to their depositors <laughs> for effectively borrowing money from them, which is what your bank does when you put money in your account. Yeah, so they lost a lot of profit over the course of more than a decade because interest rates were so low. Yeah. So now they're seeking to, to make that money back, get things back to normal. But yeah, in the process, they're going against what, Bank of England wants people to do because it wants people with savings to keep them in a savings account now. It doesn't want people to go out and spend all their money because that's more demand in the economy, that's more inflation. And what about the politics of this? I mean, there's always been a tussle 
between the government, between the Bank of England, between also consumers about who's responsible for inflation. Liz Truss basically said, it's not my responsibility, it's the Bank of England's responsibility, and they've not done a good job in managing inflation. Whereas Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt have made it central to their pledge and promises to the people, the people's priorities, as they call them. They said they're going to halve inflation. And now we've finally got a realisation or a factor of businesses being responsible for managing inflation. Where does responsibility lie now? Does it speak, I think it was interesting what you were saying at the start about there being so many different aspects to inflation and we can't just simply give responsibility to a single actor in society. Yeah, I think that was... It, it always seemed to me a bit odd that Rishi Sunak said, I'm going to halve inflation. I'm, I could understand why he said that politically, because mm. Mm. he assumed that inflation was going to halve. <laughs> and he probably possibly also thought that people might not understand what that meant. He might have thought that people would understand that to mean that the price increases that have happened would have halved, which is not true, is the speed at which further price increases will, happen, will be halved. But... Yeah, the it, it was a, it was an odd promise to make, and it's turned out to be quite a gamble because it wasn't really up to him; it was up no. to the Bank mm. of England. And as yeah, as transpired last week, inflation is not coming down. I think the in terms of core inflation, which is the sort of real temperature of the economy once you take away the volatile prices like energy and food, that I think the there were only two countries that have higher rises in yeah. core inflation than us. I think that's Argentina, which has got hyperinflation, and mm -hmm. South Sudan. So it's we're a, quite a serious outlier in that respect. And yeah, so now he's got himself into a position where there is real political urgency to do something about it in a situation where he was hoping to get away with doing nothing and take the credit. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one for him. And that's why he is talking to supermarkets about a deal to to cap prices, a voluntary cap on prices, some basic foods in supermarkets, which has been tried in France. But we've already seen that's quite divisive within the Tory party, who are not keen on the idea of price caps, not keen on the idea of being seen as, you know, Ted Heath. Government. Yeah, you make the point in the piece that John McDonnell told the New Statesman that there should be price controls to to control greedflation and actually optional price caps aren't price controls, but I suppose the language sounds similar to some in the Conservative Party who would be worried about that kind of intervention. Yeah, they're scared yeah. of a return to the 70s, as you say. They just see it as a red line they don't want to cross. Yeah, yeah. But it's well, also it's a simplistic intervention that's not necessarily going to work because, like I said, this is really complex and you need somebody like a like a regulator to step in and look at all of the price increases yeah. and say what was justified and what wasn't. That was Ed Davies' suggestion to you in the piece, wasn't it, to have an investigation by the Competition and Markets Authority into supermarkets to see, and he said that prices would probably come down the moment that starts happening. And you spoke yeah. about the responsibility of the Bank of England as well, but one of the key things I took up from your piece was, and the solutions that you suggested, was that it's not all up to the Bank of England. If it is mm. necessary for a regulator to come in, then it's in many ways out of the Bank of England's hands, especially if the banks, the retail banks, aren't acknowledging or going in the direction that the Bank of England wants them to go in. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's, yeah, the, the idea that we could just rely on monetary policy to fix things is something that might, I think, has become politically embedded over the last 10, 15 years. But as we saw when inflation started to come in across the world, it was particularly bad in the UK. And I think that was possibly as a result of a number of 
political decisions that don't have much to do with monetary policy, things like the, the health of our workforce and things like that, or the freedom of movement, that, that kind of thing, which meant they put more pressure on the labour market. Yeah, the behaviour of businesses within your economy is obviously going to affect inflation and the way in which you regulate them. And it's not, yeah, it's not a good idea to just say there's one lever for that. No. No, and obviously the consequences of greedflation, it puts puts the cost of inflation on the backs of the people who can least afford it. But also there's more dramatic consequences that some of your sources talk about in the piece. Albert Edwards, who's the head of global strategy at a French multinational bank, he talks about the French Revolution and Tiananmen Square. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always nice when an interviewee bring up the idea. Of, uh, we'll give you a nice closing paragraph for your piece. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... Food prices are linked in a bunch of academic literature to to political upheaval. There were, when Russia invaded Ukraine last year, there were a number of people predicting that there would be bread riots, as there were, again, also before the Arab Spring. Saddam uh, as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like there, there would be upsets around the world as a result of a sharp spike in food prices. And... That was there was a good bit of international cooperation that went on that meant that didn't happen as severely as it could have done. But yeah, I think it's, it's exposed weaknesses in our economy that we were, or perhaps our government was a bit complacent. Thanks so much, Will. And you can read more about this in Will's excellent cover piece in this week's New Statesman, The Rise of Greedflation. And it will also be an audio long read on our audio long read podcast, which you can subscribe to and listen to on Saturday. After the break, we'll answer your question about Labour's housing plans. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. 
they weren't doing that six months ago. It wasn't a big part of their, it wasn't one of their five key missions for government. They've slotted it underneath the economic growth one. But if you look at the briefing, yeah, it's a tiny little section. And then what we've seen in the past month or two months or so is a huge number of announcements. Whether those announcements actually result in a serious reforming agenda for housing, I think, is less clear if you actually go down to some of the details of the policies they're not as radical as they seem and they're actually not too far away from where the government are on certain things so that's something to look at but I think we are going to see a ramping up of their rhetoric on this we've got Lisa Nandy having a big delivering a big speech just before conference which we spoke about in morning call or revealed in morning call a couple of weeks ago and I think Keir Starmer has been quite uh, I think bombastic is probably too strong a word, but he has been quite hardline on housing and he has tried to strike a few divides with the government. I think it was interesting we saw the uh, report from Onward this week talking about millennials, missing millennials and how the Conservative Party is really struggling to attract young people. And once you drill down into the polling of what were the top issues that millennials, which they define as between 25 and 40, I think, what they really care about. Housing is up there. It's not for the general population, but it is for the millennials. So I think Labour are seeing an opportunity here. But more broadly, and going back to the missions, they see it as a way of driving economic growth. Or maybe they see a housing policy as needing to be justified by driving economic growth. So that's where they are at the moment. And we are seeing a ratcheting up of rhetoric. But I think the policies themselves do need a little bit more scrutiny. Yeah. And even Labour, it's difficult to find consensus for these kind of policies. I remember when the Greenbelt announcement came out, I I was on a politics programme and there was a Labour MP on Sarah Champion. She hadn't heard about these plans and she thought that it wasn't Labour policy. And when she was asked about it, she was pretty... She doesn't really want to commit to it because obviously any politician in their seat are going to have areas where people will oppose building on that land. John McDonnell as well came out to to say that he wanted the Green Belt protected in London. Sidney Khan as well. Yeah. It's remarkable when you actually look at what the Green Belt is and how the debate has changed around it. Councils can already change the Green Belt. They're discouraged to do so, but they can change where the Green Belt goes if they want to put housing on that area. So there's many things that mean that Labour aren't just suddenly going to build loads and lots, loads and loads of houses on the Greenbelt. We've already seen, for instance, the government have also said that they are going to look at allowing councils in exceptional circumstances to build on the Greenbelt. How radical it is and whether all these things come together to see them meet this huge housing target that they need to meet to fill the backlog that we've developed in the past decade or so, it is it's unclear. It's very unclear. Yeah, and I suppose it would mean forcing people like Sadiq Khan and others in local authorities and mayoralties to not oppose planning on the green belt in areas where councils want to build. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. much of it is about planning, yeah. which we've not really seen Labour talk much about recently. Yeah. And getting over that local opposition, uh, convincing people, convincing councils, convincing councillors... That's really important as well. We've not seen much debate about that. Yeah. And what about this legislation to allow councils to buy land for a lot cheaper than they already can? Will is that the kind of thing that could make a, a big difference? Is it a radical policy? Yeah, I think the going back to the beginning of the sort of current phase of the climbing house prices at the, I guess the sort of what many people see as an inflection point was the the right to buy policy, which which took a lot of council housing out of social housing and into private hands. That's the sort of side of it that's always told. But the other side of it was the the treasury borrowing limits that were imposed on councils and the way in which councils from that point onwards stopped building social housing. Yeah, I think it is widely accepted that is the remedy for the lack of social housing is for 
councils to be able to build it. But obviously, council finances are not in a good way because they haven't been allowed to build social housing. It's really, you know, a good source of income for a council as well. They've been building things like shopping centres and commercial real estate is in is in real trouble. I should say, to be fair to to Sunak and Hunt, they are certainly doing their bit to make pre-existing housing cheaper by failing to combat inflation. (laughs) After the inflation data came out last week, obviously those interest rate expectations go up, mortgage prices go up. And yeah, and so you've got fewer first-time buyers can get into the market and large numbers of people are facing significantly repriced mortgages when they refinance, which about one and a half million people are doing this year. Just out this morning was the news that the housing market has had its biggest annual fall since 2009 so far this year. And yeah, they're certainly making houses a bit cheaper, but not more affordable. So they're <laughs> yes. becoming cheaper and less affordable, which, yeah, personally, I think it when you look at the number of mortgages that will be refinanced over the coming year and up till the next general election, what might happen to rents with people, landlords getting out of the market as a result of that, what will happen to all the people who own houses that might they might have seen as investments, which will also be going down in price. It does seem like a really politically astute thing to be concentrating on. Yeah. It does, especially because so many of the, so many Conservative voters already own their home. They don't necessarily have a mortgage. So those problems and those higher prices don't really affect them. Yeah. And also, as people come to remortgage, they may be reminded of the one of the reasons why the interest rates have gone up so much. We, often people associate that with Liz Truss's premiership and that's something that will be an ongoing problem I think yeah. for the Conservatives. As long as Labour keeps saying Tory mortgage crisis I think it will be politically beneficial to them. And just lastly on the leasehold issue. So this was one of Michael Gove's aims was to try and abolish leasehold. He didn't quite manage to persuade number 10 or the Treasury that's the way to go. And Will, you've written a very good piece about why actually it would be pretty difficult to do, at least in terms of existing leaseholders, maybe trying to change the system in the future might be something that is a little easier. That's something that Labour's saying, and then they're saying, and a workable way to you know, to change current leaseholders into common hold, but they haven't really laid out their plans for exactly how that would work. But that's also an interesting point of difference, I think, now between the opposition and the government. I've been reporting on a lot on the cladding crisis, but also on leasehold in general. The cladding crisis is probably the sort of apoth... <laughs> however you say it, it's it's the ultimate symbol of the injustice of the leasehold system. And every time I reported on this, people would say, yeah, it's awful, but it's not. It's just Labour voters. It's just in cities. It's just in areas where there's new build houses. And actually, that's not true. So a lot of the people that I've been interviewing for a piece that I'm about to publish are in red wall seats. So you have this system happening in houses that have been bought up in old mining towns, old miners' houses bought up by big faceless companies and people's service charges suddenly rocket you have new build housing estates which are now being called fleecehold because while they are freehold the council isn't the one doing the maintenance of the communal gardens and areas you actually have to pay an extra charge on those places that you have no control over so i do think that it is probably a more electorally significant issue than perhaps some in the conservative party realize i think it will be and it's i mean just going back to our previous conversation about inflation as this anger builds up about the economy it'll express itself in probably quite indirect and general ways. People don't necessarily think about all the different parts to inflation and where they should necessarily blame, whether it should be the Bank of England or the government or companies. But if there is a general malaise with the economy, we do know that usually, and house prices fit into that as well, we do know that usually that 
goes very badly for the government. Yeah, on a leaseholds. I think that it's contested how many leaseholds there actually are across the UK, but it is millions of households. Uh, And yeah, and it does have a a strong whiff of people have called, I think Michael Gove called it a feudal system. It it does have a strong whiff of uh, aspirational working people who want to buy their own home being fleeced by landowners. It does have quite a, yeah, a smell of the 18th century or earlier. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for joining us, Will. It was great to have you. And thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and Will Dunn. We'll be back on Monday to discuss how to fix the Met. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. You can also watch video from this podcast on our YouTube channel. Just search YouTube for The New Statesman. We're produced by Adrian Bradley.